the church's music from the second century. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and truth. The sixth century. The twelfth century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org You've heard it many times, and oddly, while this is a very popular definition of faith among skeptics, even atheists, that definition being faith is what you, well, it's what you do when you have no evidence. It is believing something without any proof. It's also shared by many, many Christians. They believe that their faith is essentially blind, that they really are just taking that leap of faith without any evidence, without any reason or rationality. Is that how the Bible defines faith? Welcome back to Issues Etc. Joining us to talk about faith, evidence, and skepticism, Shane Rosenthal. He formerly served as the executive producer of the White Horse Inn, and he's creator and host and producer of the new podcast, The Humble Skeptic. Shane, welcome back. Hey, Todd, good to be with you. You were raised a Jew and then later became an atheist. Tell us about that. You know, it's interesting. I was actually an atheist by the third grade. <laughs> I just, I remember having conversations with friends on the block. This is in the days when kids used to play on the block. Now they're all just sitting on their couches playing Xbox. So I'm talking with friends about the fact that I think it's all made up. I was at the time going to Sunday school, sorry, Hebrew school, studying to be bar mitzvahed. I mean, this is in the days when adults treated you like you needed to be a, a young adult too. That's what a bar mitzvah means. Now you're a man. And so you have to study Hebrew. I had to comment on a sermon at age 13. I had to present material to like read and comment on this portion of the Torah as a 13-year-old youngster. Anyway, different world. But even though I was going through that process, I, I thought it was made up. I thought it was fiction, and I wasn't, wasn't convinced didn't see any relevance for it. And something happened to me, though, later on, as I began reading and studying and talking with people, I began to see that I never really knew anything about Jesus. And I found him to be a fascinating character. But more than anything, I was convinced that he wasn't easily dismissed. And I started talking to rabbis about this. And I was convinced that their answers weren't particularly good. When I was uh, in the Jewish world, the typical response was, Jesus was Jewish. He's in our camp. Thank you. I know you may be interested, but he was Jewish. You should be Jewish like us. That was the typical thing. But we didn't hear a lot about messianic themes in the Bible. So that was the main thing that that sort of drew me in to investigate this, was seeing all these passages in the Bible, such as Isaiah 53, 
that the Lord has laid upon him, the iniquity of us all. Psalm 22, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Micah 5, 2, out of Bethlehem shall come the one who will be ruler of all. And I thought, you know, I've seen the Christmas specials, but I've never, I never remember anyone talking about this in Hebrew school, that there was a me- an expected Messiah who was going to come and be born in Bethlehem. And the rabbis gave me some interesting ideas and thoughts, some of which I couldn't answer for years, but I put them on the back shelf. And ultimately, I found that the the Christian answer had the had the most going for it. In that atheist phase, what did you believe about faith? So I thought it was more of kind of a wishful thinking. You know, it's just the way you're raised. It's more about family tradition, because I'm in a different family tradition than most people in my block. Lived in uh, the San Fernando Valley of Southern California. And most of the people on my block, you know, they had Christmas and, and we didn't. And so we were identified, our faith and our culture and our tradition was we didn't believe in Jesus, we don't celebrate Christmas. Not a whole lot of theology there besides that. Contemporary Judaism is more about it's a culture, it's a way of living, but not a lot of theology. So as I'm kind of doubting the stories of the Bible that I'm being taught, I just thought everybody kind of comes to faith because of the way they're raised. You're raised a Baptist, you're raised a Muslim, you're raised in the Jewish world, and that's kind of it. So that's the way I just saw it. It's something that your your tradition imposes upon you. And I never knew that there was such a thing as, you know, having reasons for faith. That was never something that I was given as a young person in the Jewish world, and it was never anything I heard anybody make an argument for positively for their faith. It's just something you're you're raised with. So you say that the confusion over the meaning of faith is at the heart of our increasing secularism. What do you mean by that? So I'm convinced that not only just culturally speaking from, you know, you, you'll hear people say things like faith is the suspension of critical thinking. That's something Bill Maher said. I, I played clips of that from my recent episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, where we're asking this question about faith. Bill Maher says it's the critical suspension of reason. Richard Dawkins says it's the it's something you believe without evidence. Neil deGrasse Tyson says something similar. That's the common view on the street. It's faith is not associated with knowledge. It's just a leap. It's a blind leap. So one of the things I did recently was I interviewed a whole bunch of people at a lot of different Christian gatherings. I mean, probably close to 100 individuals. And the overwhelming majority of the answers that I got ended up being similar to the view put forward by the new atheists. Richard Dawkins says, you only need to have faith when you don't have any evidence. Why would you need to call it faith? You would just call it evidence. So there's a distinction. You know, faith is that gap. The evidence gets you so far, boom, then you have that thing you need to jump over, like that scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you got to take that blind leap. That's the popular view of faith, not just out there in the world of the new atheists. That's the popular view among most Christians that I interviewed. And that's, I think, the problem, because it's not just a caricature that they're presenting when someone like Richard Dawkins criticizes faith as believing in something without evidence. 
it's not really a caricature. There are a lot of living caricatures to that position, and that's something we we need to fix in our own traditions. You say that this notion that uh, faith is believing something without evidence is not an incredibly old idea. It's rather recent. Where did it come from? Well, if you actually take some time, and I did this recently, I, I, I had to give a lecture on the topic of faith. So I, I've heard that the Oxford English Dictionary kind of traces this out. You can see, because they have a lot of these citations, examples from various writings with dates, and you can see how the word faith is used and how it changes over time. And what happens is when I took the time to do this, I found that the word faith, what you find is the shift takes place in the 1800s or so. And what mostly it means when you look at the way it's used in English, we'll get to the Greek in just a minute, but in English, the word can mean things like a good faith promise. It could mean a body, a system of belief, like the Christian faith, the Muslim faith. But one definition that I wasn't able to find, I mean, every word has multiple definitions, so this isn't new, but I wasn't able to find anywhere in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the world's most exhaustive dictionary. I mean, it's 20 volumes, 21,000 pages. So I wasn't able to find the definition that everyone is using today. Nowhere in the Oxford English Dictionary do we find the definition that faith is believing something without evidence? The only place I was able to find something close to that in the Oxford English Dictionary was in its heading under blind faith. Now, if you think about that, the word blind is the key modifier of that phrase. It's negating, it's saying, that, I mean, why would you need to use that modifier if faith already was something without evidence? Blind faith, so... The word faith simply means trust. It means sometimes it can be used to refer to like uh, having s strong confidence in someone, something. This is why a dog is named Fido in a lot of the old movies and cartoons. Fido, it's, you know, sola fide. <laughs> the word Fido, it's a trustworthy companion, basically. It's why the name, that name stuck over the ages. Probably comes from Latin. Some, some Latin guy named his dog Fido and it's stuck. So it's trustworthy. When we know someone is trustworthy, think of your experience with a friend. You don't just take a blind leap of faith to say, I think I will trust you. There's a body of doctrine and dogma in the history of your relationship with your friend. And you know whether that person is trustworthy or not. And so it's the knowledge and our experience helps us to say, this person can be relied upon. And that's the crucial thing, is you look at the way the word faith is used in both in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, the way Aristotle uses the same Greek word. Forget the English word. The English word and the Greek word are very similar in that they're focusing on objective considerations, not subjective considerations. It's not about my faith leap, it's about the object of faith, and whether or not that object is trustworthy or not. And in the case of the, the word faith, like people, people like Aristotle and Josephus, when they used the word, it was, we are going to confirm this by evidence. And so that's what I talked about on my recent episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, where we just take a deep dive into the dictionary definition as it was used in its original context and how it's used in the later in English. But then it changes at some point, 
and you can see the way it changes. One of the things I did is I looked at the Google Ngram viewer, which is a tool that Google has scanned in all their documents, all their books from the 1500s to the present. And that viewer, you could type in a phrase. I typed in the word, the phrase leap of faith and blind faith. And when you type those in, you can see those don't really come into prominence. Blind faith, not until the early 1800s and leap of faith, not until 1920s, really. So those are sort of new developments in the English world, but it doesn't match with the history of what the word used to mean in English. And it certainly doesn't match what it used to mean, what it does mean in Greek in our New Testament. So go into that in the New Testament Greek. How is that word used there? So in Greek, it's pisteo. Basically, the Greek forms, whether the noun form or the verbal form, are the key idea is trust. What we have today is this emphasis on our, the, the subject. You know, if you think about the way we believe that we're going to get to another town by getting on a plane. You can't get to the other town by not believing in the plane. So the subject, your subjective belief is important. But what's more important <laughs> is the object, whether or not that plane has fuel in it, whether or not there's a pilot who could fly it, whether or not it's all the mechanics are working right. So your faith has to line up with the object. And your faith will do you no good if there's no diesel or if there's no jet fuel in the plane. So what you believe only matters if it's connecting to reality. And that's the way the New Testament word is used. Think about the way Jesus will say, you know, you, you may not believe me, but if you don't believe me, believe on the, for the sake of the works that I do. He's pointing to objective considerations. That's from John 10, I think, verses 37 and following. So believe on the basis of the things you see me doing. What, what do you see in the beginning of the book of John? His disciples saw him change water into wine, and they believed. They saw what he did, and then they expressed faith. They trusted him that he was, in fact, the Messiah. What does he tell John the Baptist? Go tell John what you have seen and heard, the dead are raised, the lame leap, all those particular miracles that were connecting with Old Testament prophecies. So it's the match between the eyewitness testimony and what the historic Hebrew prophets of old had said. That's how you know he's the Messiah. It's not a blind leap. This is confirmed because of what the witnesses saw and what the witnesses saw matched the Old Testament promises. Shane Rosenthal of The Humble Skeptic is our guest. We're talking about faith, evidence, and skepticism. Does Scripture then support the idea that faith is irrational? We'll answer that question next. What can we learn from our Lutheran forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled For Such a Time as This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Church music directors can find a new community at Prelude to Postlude, the CPH Music blog. Learn helpful tips for managing music ministry and involving members, and meet the composers of some of your favorite new pieces. 
Plus, find suggestions of music to use for special services and preview some of our newest works with free samples you can use at your church. Visit us at preludetopostlude.org. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu talking about faith, evidence, and skepticism with Shane Rosenthal. He formerly served as the executive producer of the White Horse Inn, and he's creator, host, and producer of a new podcast, The Humble Skeptic. Shane, does Scripture support in any way the idea that faith is irrational? There are actually no passages in the Bible that seem to suggest that this is an irrational blind leap, although that did come up a lot. I, I met some Christians who even used that phrase, that the faith can be irrational, and we should sort of close our mind to that because we just have to follow it, even though it's irrational. But more often than not, people would use this language of just a blind leap in the dark. It's something you just know intuitively, and it's something you feel. But whatever the case, it's something internal and subjective, nothing external. And the question I kept putting back to the people I was interviewing is, how do you know you're making the right leap? If faith is blind, if it's just a leap in the dark, then how do you know that you're making the right leap into the Christian religion with Jesus to the Bible? There are other purported holy books. There are other people who claim to be prophets, Muhammad. There are other gods. There's polytheism. So how do you know that your blind faith leap is in the right religion? (laughs) And sometimes what you'd get is people say, well, I don't think there is such a thing as the right religion. That's all subjective. There's no absolute truth in religion. Some people would say, I don't know. I just know intuitively in my heart. So when you get to faith, though, in the Bible— it doesn't pre- present this as an irrational thing. It makes it, it presents this as the most reasonable thing. Think about the way that Luke opens up his gospel. You know, he's persuading Theophilus to believe the things that he is presenting here because he has researched them. He's talked with the eyewitnesses. He's recording some of the things the witnesses have already established. He's putting them in an orderly way, all so that Theophilus can have certainty. Think of the way that Luke talks about Paul's conversation with Festus and Agrippa in Acts 26. What I'm saying to you, Festus, is true and reasonable. True and reasonable. So, because these things have not been done in a corner. It just so happens that here are some things that happened. Jesus did certain things. Everybody knows about it, and here's how it matches the Old Testament promises. That's what... The Christian apologists are doing again and again, they're reasoning with people, persuading them in the synagogues, 
trying to demonstrate that this isn't an offense against reason. It's actually the best explanation of all that has happened. So why are so many outside and, as you've pointed out, inside Christianity, unaware of the distinctive nature of Christian truth claims? Well, part of it is, as I listen to the kind of answers that I get when I do these these types of street interviews, what I realize is a lot of people today just aren't really familiar with the New Testament as it's written. Because if they were, they would see clearly that the the kind of language it's presenting regularly. What does Luke say in the beginning of Acts? That Jesus demonstrated this, his resurrection, by many convincing proofs. What I got again and again from the people I was interviewing is faith isn't something you can prove. You can't give evidence for it. If you if you could give evidence, why would you need faith? That but I mean just go back to the very beginning of the story. From the very beginning of the story, Moses is there at the site of the burning bush. And he is hearing God speak to him, and God says, you got to go tell people the message of liberation. And Moses says, yeah, but the people aren't going to believe me. <laughs> it's a funny seed. You know, what, what am I going to say, God? I was talking to a bush, and this is going to be hard for them to believe. Well, what does God say there? He doesn't say, don't worry about it, Moses. I will give them a burning in their bosom. They will just know They'll have practical experiences. They're going to have their best life now. None of the stuff that's popular in our language today, the language of conservative Protestant theology, none of that. What he says is, I will give them a sign. And if they don't believe that, I'll give them another sign. If they don't believe that, I'll give them another sign. And as the book of Exodus grows, you see those signs grow and grow and grow into a big crescendo to the point where they're saying to Moses, please, whatever you you can talk to us, but don't let him talk to us because Whenever he speaks, we feel like we want to die. (laughs) And this is something Moses actually is told by God. When they hear me speaking with you, Yahweh says, they will know that you are authoritative and that you can be trusted. It's not just a faith leap. They know that Moses is the prophet. So then, you know, future prophets. How do we know the future prophets like Isaiah are true prophets? Well, it says... Very clearly, Deuteronomy 18, the true prophet is the one who will clearly predict things that will come to pass. So we can look at our Old Testament and say, look at all the passages here, not just scattered here and there, but the whole thing can, just like Jesus said, is about Jesus. And when you look at Isaiah, you say he's predicting all these things that came to pass. He's predicting the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion, the restoration under Cyrus, but most importantly, he's predicting clearly communicating. It looks like a chapter from Luke's Gospel in Isaiah 53. There, all the Christ suffered and his death for sin and his accounting us as righteous in him. Isaiah 53 is just an amazing passage. Well, all this is written 700 years before Jesus ever arrives on the scene. So that can't be explained in any other way by saying this is a divine text. There's no way to explain that. And so it's a very rational and reasonable way to conclude that this text can't be explained naturally. You point out, and I thought this was uh, both true and clever, that characters like Richard Dawkins, they exercise faith, albeit not Christian faith, they exercise faith all the time. How so? Well, if you think about someone like Richard Dawkins, he is assuming that 
he's got, A, the correct definition of faith. He says, faith to me means believing something without evidence. Okay, well, do we just take your definition of faith as if it's the gospel truth? Or should we investigate it? <laughs> and that's what I try to do on my latest episode is, I don't want to just take you on faith, I want to investigate it. And then secondarily, if you think about Richard Dawkins, he's a scientist, but he's a scientist in a specific field, in particular zoology. So he trusts scientists from all over the world on a whole bunch of different fronts, in the world of physics, in the world of chemistry, but he isn't doing all the scientific experiments himself. He's trusting the reports of all those other scientists. And that's what, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it says faith, it actually, in one case, describes it as a kind of evidence. In fact, it was Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer. He actually wrote a book called Logic and the Right Use of Reason. Oxford English Dictionary uses this as an example of the kind of faith that is evidence-based. So whereas the New Atheists were saying things like, faith is believing things without evidence, I wasn't able to find that definition anywhere, but I was able to find the opposite, where it says, faith is believing things on the basis of evidence and authority and trust. And it gives this kind of evidence where it's the evidence of testimony. If you think about this, too, it makes the best sense. When you go to a court of law, what's the best kind of evidence? Well, there's circumstantial evidence. You found a lead pipe in the billiard room. Uh, but that's all you got. And what you need is an eyewitness, somebody like Professor Plum, who saw Colonel Mustard, to use an example from the popular board game. The eyewitness testimony it has the most weight because it really is evidence. Eyewitness testimony, the word of others, is evidence. Now, what Isaac Watts says in his logic book is the more witnesses you have and the more sure their testimony, the more reliable their testimony, the stronger your faith. So clearly there, he's not using faith in that sort of sense of this is a blind leap. But that's the same way that Richard Dawkins trusts other scientists. That's the same way that Richard Dawkins trusts his own faculties. He trusts his own reason. He trusts his own sense perception. All that, we just have to take on faith. We trust it because we know it has served us well. But it's still a kind of trust at the end of the day. Shane, what can you tell us about your new podcast, The Humble Skeptic? The Humble Skeptic podcast, what I'm trying to do is reach out to a wider audience. I want to bring in people from a wide variety of backgrounds, kind of like people who were where I was before I became a, a believer. I, want to, I don't want to just think in terms of reaching out to Christians only. It's the kind of program that you could recommend to, say, a non-Christian friend or somebody who's thinking in terms of what is the meaning of life? I guess the heart of it, though, is I like to ask questions and to investigate. So if you like a kind of a true crime approach, but apply to things related to worldview, then this may be something you want to check out. In the first episode, I'm actually investigating whether my dad really had been at the piano bar where Billy Joel performed before he was famous, the one that inspired his song Piano Man. He tells me this story. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. But then things didn't begin to add up. So my brother was saying, but we were in West Virginia at the time. How does that work? So I spent the entire episode looking at the facts to see, is his story credible? And I interviewed my own family members who were trying to get to the bottom of this. I'm, I'm reading biographies, looking at, at the data. So that was kind of a fun episode that's telling a story 
about how do you get to the truth. And for me, the most crucial way to get to the truth is by asking questions and by investigating. Don't just take people's word for it, especially when there's a conflict. When there's a conflict, well, do some digging and try to figure out is the is a particular person's claim credible or not. You'll find a link to The Humble Skeptic at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Shane Rosenthal formerly served as the executive producer of The White Horse Inn, and he's creator, host, and producer of the new podcast, The Humble Skeptic. Shane, thanks. Hey, thanks, Todd. It's great to be with you. Friday on Issues Etc., we'll get a review of the movie Black Panther Wakanda Forever from Pastor Ted Geese, and it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. The grace of God, the church's music, the Lord's Supper every service every Sunday, Preaching Christ crucified and risen, our hope for years to come, there is hope in St. Louis, Hope Lutheran Church, that is. 5218 Neosho Street, St. Louis, Missouri. Find us on the web at hopelutheranstl.org. You can help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th.